Welcome to Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. I'm your aptly named host of your favorite hebdomadal podcast. I'm still traveling without my studio mic, so my sound won't be up to par. It'll be back to normal next week. And I'm introducing my niece, Carmela, as our sponsor announcer this week. Oh, I'm glad you're with me. I'd be thrown into trypanosomiasis if you infected me with the idea that you missed this week's show. Feasibility studies. What, why, and how. If a capital, endowment, or other campaign may be in your nonprofit's future, you'll want to consider a feasibility study beforehand. Brian Abernathy from Convergent Nonprofit Solutions explains what they're all about. On Tony's Take Two, Classy Digs Nonprofit Radio. We're sponsored by DonorBox. With intuitive fundraising software from DonorBox, your donors give four times faster. Helping you help others. DonorBox.org. Here is Feasibility Studies. What, why, and how. It's a pleasure to welcome Brian Abernathy to Nonprofit Radio. He is general manager at Convergent Nonprofit Solutions, where he has supervised and managed capital campaigns that have raised more than $125 million. The company is at convergentnonprofit.com, and Brian is on LinkedIn. Brian Abernathy, welcome to Nonprofit Radio. Thanks, Tony. Great to have the opportunity to join you today. I'm glad you can. Thank you. Let's talk about feasibility studies. Let's, uh, before we get into the how and the why, uh, which actually we'll do the why and the how, but before we even do the why and the how, let's talk about the what. What, what are we talking about feasibility studies? Yeah, so a feasibility study, Tony, you could boil it down very simply to uh, a strategic due diligence before a major funding initiative uh, and capital campaign. That's the context of feasibility study uh, that Convergent manages and works with our clients on. Uh, it's not a, uh, will this new building attract the right market of folks? Uh, that's a different type of study researching utility. What we're talking about here is, can this program of work raise the necessary amount of money and are we confident that we've got the right dynamics to go out and execute a successful capital campaign to secure that funding? Do we need to know what our goal is going into the feasibility study or have a working goal? Or, uh, I mean, uh, uh, surely the study is going to refine that, but do we need to have a ballpark of what we're, what we're looking for? Yeah, within reason, we always say it's good to think big in a feasibility study. When we go into this process, the, uh, the, the proposed program of work that we're going to take out and use in confidential interviews, uh, we refer to that as a draft prospectus. So it is a working document, uh, primarily because we want everyone we meet with to know that their feedback can still shape that plan. Uh, but it also gives us the opportunity uh, to test different aspects of the goal amount uh, and the utility of that funding. So we know we might uh, need to do a building campaign, for instance, but do we wanna also test the prospect of some endowment 
to underwrite the long-term maintenance of that building. Now that's obviously gonna bring the funding goal up. We can test all of those things in the study. We will come back and recommend a specific goal range for a campaign, but it's always easier to bring that number in a little bit after a study than to realize, oh, we should have, we should have tested the endowment for the building, but we didn't think about it in advance. So uh, we wanna think with a, what could we possibly need to execute this plan uh, and, and reference that number as our uh, our proposed goal during the feasibility process. Okay, so so a part of it is uh, getting feedback on the proposed goal. That's right. That's okay. right. Do, do people get sticker shock if if most of the folks that we talk to see a number and their eyes get really wide and they start to sweat in the interview? That tells us it may be a little bit ambitious. Uh, and sometimes there are really easy ways to resolve that. Uh, maybe there's a, a piece of the program like an endowment that we can just quietly approach in uh, the appropriate individual conversations. But sometimes it is uh, a recommendation of you might want to look at phasing how you go about this so that you can get the necessary funding uh, and just look at a longer horizon of time uh, and potentially a couple of campaigns or more to bring that funding in. Okay. Okay. All valuable info. All right. Um and and how many folks are we are we talking to typically how how does that work so excuse me on average we're going to interview between 55 and 65 uh, uh participants in a feasibility study process uh, we typically are going to do three weeks of in-person interviews uh, that number obviously varies a little bit depending on the specific client the geographic scope if you've got a statewide campaign it's hard to get to all the right folks maybe in a three-week period uh, but we want to talk to the highest capacity most influential stakeholders for whatever the nonprofit is that we're working with uh, and, and get their bearings on uh, where this proposed program of work and potential capital campaign uh, might be headed. Does it have to be a capital campaign? Can it, can it be a programmatic campaign that we're doing a feasibility study for or strictly an endowment campaign? Yeah, that's a great question. A lot of folks hear the words capital campaign and think, oh, we don't need a new building, so we don't need a capital campaign. When we talk about a capital campaign, we speak more about the funding strategy and infrastructure. So it's a focused initiative to fund a multi-year program of work. It may be 100% programmatic. It may be 100% building capital. Uh, we've got a, a couple in process right now that are 100% endowment focused. Mm -hmm. uh, we worked with the Boys and Girls Club in Kentucky last year that was all of the above. It was uh, retrofitting a building that had been provided to them funding the operation and utility of that building and its staff for a five-year period of time and also putting into place an endowment to fund the maintenance and upkeep of that building so a little bit of both uh, but when we say capital campaign we certainly are not exclusively talking building capital okay cool all right so uh let, 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 let's move to the why what, what what's the value of doing a feasibility study what are you, what are you going to get out of it yeah, so the old adage of, uh, of counting the cost before you start to build a tower plays in uh, perfectly here. Uh, we're going to approach the study, uh, and, and there's a few key factors that we're looking to validate. 
we need to know that there is a, a sense of urgency for whatever the need is that this program of work is going to address. Uh, we need to know that it's being conveyed in a compelling way, that those who hear about the need and then hear about the solution to that need are gonna be compelled to step in and be involved. And we wanna know that the right leadership is ready to step up for that campaign. And this comes in two factors, Tony. Um, one is just the right influence. Fundraising is a game of relationship. Strategy goes a long way, but if you don't know anyone in a community and have all the best strategy, you're probably not gonna get the right doors open. So we wanna vet out who would the best possible leaders be uh, from a, a volunteer influence standpoint in a campaign. And the second piece of leadership is funding leadership. Are we able to identify viable prospects ready to step in and play significant roles in terms of their investment in whatever this campaign uh, will be implementing knowing that we're able to set the right perspective for the top of that uh, uh, donor pyramid or what we call an investment range table. Uh, we're specifically looking for uh, a way to identify the top level potential supporters for a campaign, knowing that that's going to set the peak where everybody's going to look to. So uh, now, we do. Let me just flush out uh, uh, some of these. So, so you can identify, uh, top potential campaign leadership and also top potential donors through a feasibility study? That's right. So every single interview that we're in, we're going to ask a, a number of questions focused on these two factors. And we're going to come out with a recommended list of, of key campaign cabinet uh, and volunteer leaders for each campaign that we conduct a feasibility study on. Uh, in most cases, we're actually going to have uh, a drafted organization chart of different prospect divisions and leaders that we believe uh, are going to have influence with those different pools uh, of individuals, organizations, foundations, whoever it may be. Uh, what that tells us is we're going to have somebody with the right set of keys to open the doors that we need to get to. And then getting a little bit further down the road into a campaign, we're able to make the strategic highest and best use of each volunteer's time, because we know uh, volunteers in fundraising efforts generally have day jobs and a lot of other things drawing on their time. So that's critical intelligence uh, for any nonprofit going into a funding initiative, especially a major funding initiative like a capital campaign, because you just don't want to churn and wear out your volunteers on a campaign that runs, you know, 18 months, two years, three years, folks just really start to get exhausted. So we we map all of that out to inform a leadership strategy for the campaign. Okay, uh, so 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 far we talked about uh, a need and a compelling purpose that's going to move people. Um, you know the, the the value you get out of this, the leadership, the volunteer leadership for the campaign structure, the donor leadership. What else? Why, why else do these do a study? Yeah, so in that donor leadership uh, reference point, we do reverse analytics on every campaign that we complete. So when we look at nonprofit sectors or, or whatever the case may be, we've got a general idea of we need to find a top uh, pledge of X percent of the overall campaign goal. And our top five need to be uh, the next percentage and the top 10 and so on and so forth. 
So we're strategically modeling out a highly, highly reliable uh, perspective on this is the funding mix that needs to be in place so that a campaign can be successful. Uh, and so, so in, in, in these interviews, you're, you're, are you coming right out and asking folks what, 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 what do you see your participation as in this campaign that, that we're talking about? Or do you, are, yeah. you proposing, are you proposing dollar amounts for each interviewee or? We've got a. Uh, how are you getting at this, this, this we'll potential take, camp, campaign contribution? Yeah, we'll take the test goal and break it down into a funding chart just to, to show a visual of, uh, we'll use round numbers, if we've got a $10 million campaign goal, we need a 15% lead pledge, that would be a million and a half dollars. And so we do a couple of things. We ask every interviewee, uh, who do you think could be up here potentially at the top ranges of this uh, of this pyramid. So who might be that million and a half dollar lead or a, a couple of folks at half a million below that. Uh, and, and in these candid confidential conversations, folks will say, oh, so-and-so would be great or this foundation or that family, uh, you should try to talk to them. Uh, the other thing that we do after that is we ask each interviewee, if the right leaders were engaged in this campaign and if you had uh, the right confidence in the case for investment, uh, where do you think from a low to high range, your organization uh, or family or whoever it is might land in terms of a potential investment? So it's all very hypothetical based on the variables of the conversation. We're very clear it's not a commitment to funding, but the majority of the time, because we're the third party uh, outside person who is not putting a pledge card in front of them, asking them to sign it in this conversation, They'll give us that range. And sometimes it's pretty broad within uh, appropriate reason based on questions the interviewee may still have. But it helps us to know both for those individuals and also for uh, some industry and community subsets of peers where we might expect to be able to find uh, mm. the funding for the campaign. When you ask uh, who might be at this, this top level, the, the 15% of the goal, do people ever say, oh, I could do that? Uh, in some cases, yes. Does that uh, happen? Actually, yeah. A great way to identify a potential. Well, yeah. Lead. I mean, if they self-identify, yeah, I say there's no better way. But that, that happens. People say, oh, I, I could do that. Yeah. Yeah. And especially when you're talking buildings and you're talking about naming opportunities, which we would, of course, address in a feasibility study if there is a building in play. It, you get to have a whole nother set of conversation to follow down of what might be most appealing in terms of naming this facility to honor the memory of your mother or whoever the case may be. Um, now, those are confidential conversations. So we're using that to inform strategy moving on down the line in a campaign. Uh, but we do not share that information. So we assure them that they're never going to see a report that says, uh, Bob and Susie really want to be the lead pledge and name the whole facility. Uh, we we still work through the process, honor the reality that they may have other things they need to uh, vet out and validate before they're ready to finalize that commitment. But we've got a pretty good idea from that conversation how we would want to approach them, when in the campaign timeline we might want to approach them, and even what leaders would be most influential uh, to garnering their pledge, because we also ask them who they think would be the best leaders. 
It's time for a break. DonorBox. It is the fundraising engine of choice for 50,000 organizations from 96 countries. It's powerful enough to double donations and simple enough to be used by everyone. Black Girls Code increased donations by 400%. Upward Scholars increased donations by 270%. Maya's Hope saw a 100% increase in donors. The DonorBox donation form is four times faster checkout. No setup fees, no monthly fees, no contract, and 50,000 orgs. DonorBox, helping you help others. DonorBox.org. Now back to feasibility studies. What, why, and how? Okay, very interesting. So if, you're, if your client, the nonprofit, asks, well, who is it that stepped up? What makes you so confident uh, that we can get this? We have the, a very good prospect for this 15% leadership gift. And who are they? You, you, you can't say it's Bob and Susie? Uh, we don't. No, uh, we, we, we probably could. We choose not to um, uh, because it, it is one of those factors that helps ensure that we're getting the most candid and direct feedback out of those interviews. Uh, what we do provide is a perspective of we're highly confident that these folks should be considered in this range of potential investment or we believe based on prior conversations, this family could be a great naming target. Most of the time, Tony, uh, with a nonprofit that's highly connected and engaged with their constituents, they've already got a pretty good idea of who those folks are. So it's not common that we get a complete surprise out of that. And more often than not, we're going into those interviews, uh, sort of ferreting out we think this person could have interest in naming a facility or or stepping up and taking a key leadership role. So prior to even getting into interviews, we've gone back and forth uh, several rounds with the list of interviewees, getting all the background information, all the perspective from our client, uh, what's their past giving history look like and so forth. So we've got a pretty good starting point that uh, we're, we're strategically approaching those conversations. And when we find that potential lead pledge that we weren't expecting, we're thrilled. Uh, but, but most of the time, we've got a pretty good idea where those need to come from before we even start the interviews. This sounds very much like an art. I mean, these, these face-to-face interviews or whatever, Zoom or you know, however they're done. But these interviews, uh, it sounds like you get like one shot to have a serious conversation with a donor or an individual donor or foundation, or maybe it's a couple, you you know, it's got to be, it it just sounds like an art. I mean, you got to be organized. You have to have the story complete. I think you, I don't know, it looks bad. I think if you come back and, well, you might say we have some follow-up questions. I guess I could see that, but it seems to me you get one shot to do it really well. Yeah, and, and you're exactly right, Tony. Most of these folks don't have hours and hours of time that they want to give over a number of weeks or months to have follow-up yeah. conversations. Right. So we're very strategic. We develop a questionnaire that we use for each client, and some of those questions are, um, are standard. Some of those are obviously very unique to the client situation. Uh, but we've also got a team of consultants, most of whom are former uh, C-level nonprofit executives, 
Uh, and so there's a lot of intuition that comes into play here of uh, if somebody says something about uh, one initiative in a program of work that, that tweaks some interest, we may chase that thought a little bit more. Uh, we may push a little bit harder for what we would call a financial indication in some interviews and other places we may back off. Um, so there's a lot of nuance in how those conversations play out. All right. So let's, let's keep pulling on this thread about what, what you're going to get out of it, the, the value. Why, why do it? So the, if you want to think about value in terms of a, a simple deliverable, uh, we're going to prepare what we call an opportunity analysis report and recommendations. Uh, and that's going to give um, the uh, objective responses that we collected, some quantitative, some qualitative. We're going to analyze those. We're going to give you perspective on the trends and the feedback that we got. Uh, and then it's going to give uh, specific recommendations on next steps. Very, very rarely, Tony, is that next step a, a cold and hard no-go on a campaign. Sometimes it is a, a bad time for an organization to step into a campaign. Most of the time, there is specific work to be done to prepare for a campaign or we're going into a campaign pretty swiftly. Some of that is the shelf life on these reports. Uh, we think of it about a 90 to 120 day time span. Um, the, uh, we know from the past few years, a lot can change in three months. So uh, sitting and waiting and considering, should we go forward, should we not on, on the side of a nonprofit uh, can be risky uh, in some cases. Let me ask you, what uh, what might some of that work be that has to be done first? If it's not a if it's not a hard let's go, we're one hundred percent, or you can never be one hundred percent. We're ninety five percent confident. But if you're not at that point, what might some of that work be that needs to be done first? Uh, so generally, it's going to fall into uh, one of three specific subsets that we focus on, uh, and we've got a principle we talk about at Convergent called asking rights. Uh, and asking rights is the intersection of your nonprofit's credibility, uh, the clarity of the outcomes that it delivers uh, through the work that it does, not the outputs or the activity, but the true bottom line impact, uh, and then fundraising skill. Uh, and so we're going to look at those three dynamics through the interviews, and we may come out of a feasibility study process and say, your credibility is not quite where it needs to be. And so we need to take some focused time uh, to cultivate messaging, to engage your constituency, get the right leaders committed, maybe do some board work uh, to get them ready to step in and, and be active. Sometimes this can take place in the uh, foundational phase of a capital campaign. Sometimes it takes a little bit more time. Uh, on the outcome side, generally we're going to address this through something we call program refinement early uh, in a campaign engagement where we're taking that draft plan from the study now we're sharpening it up. We're answering the questions that we heard, uh, adding some specificity uh, and really, uh, really working on developing what we call an organizational value proposition, uh, which is how we would convey uh, the, the true outcomes and economic value that whatever the nonprofit is we're working with is delivering in their community. Okay. Uh, and then the last piece is the fundraising skill. So in some cases, we've got a great plan We've got the right outcomes, but the fundraising infrastructure to go out uh, and execute on a campaign is just not there. And so 
one of the common engagements that we work with clients on in that space uh, is a multi-month resource development uh, strategy engagement where we're uh, addressing and building out some of those fundraising infrastructure points so that when the time does get there to turn on a capital campaign, uh, the organization is ready to move forward smoothly. Meanwhile, though, the, the clock is ticking on the value of the 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 study you said what you said 90 to 120 days is that I'm, i don't mean to put words in your mouth is that right is that yeah that that's okay. our goal that we try to uh we right, try so three to so three to four months you see of, of after that the the landscape could have changed from the conversations that you had that's right and if we that get, time is ticking while you're trying to do this sort of fundraising infrastructure work that's right so if we end up with a longer term engagement uh, that, that we're involved in, what we're going to do is maintain the reference points to know what factors we need to see shift to be prepared for moving into a campaign. If we get beyond that horizon, uh, we've got the perspective from the, uh, the critical interviews that we conducted in the study, uh, and we would just roll what we call some re-interviews into the early stages of the capital campaign to get some uh, revalidation an affirmation that none of those findings adjusted. And that's usually somewhere in the neighborhood of, you know, six to 10, maybe 12 key conversations. And once we validate, yet yeah, we still got the right leaders. Uh, we still have the uh, affirmed support of some of those lead uh, prospective donors or investors. Uh, then we're confident to move forward with the rest of the recommendations as we had previously identified. Okay. Okay. Anything else on the, uh, the value proposition part? What, what we're going to get out of this study, why we're doing it? Yeah, the, uh, the last big piece is that campaign strategy and timeline. So we're going to give specific recommendations on uh, the scope of campaign, what we believe a high to low feasible goal range is going to be, uh, the number of months that we believe it's going to take you to manage a campaign. Uh, and then uh, if that client is interested in working with us, we're also recommending the level uh, of campaign management or counsel uh, from our side that we believe would be most conducive to their success, given uh, their community size, size of their organization and staff and so forth. So now we have this, we have this report, I, I guess it's, it's also typically a presentation to the board yep. and the, and the C-suite leadership, I, I imagine, but also written report. Um, now then folks can take that report and go off and, I don't know, try, they can try to try the campaign on their own. I'm sure they're free to engage Convergent, which, which you would love, you'd love to do that work. Uh, or they can do, they could hire some other firm, I guess, right? Yep, that's right. So every now and then we will do a campaign where another firm did a study. It's not all that common and vice versa. It's not all that common that we would do a study and another firm would come in and manage a campaign just because you can imagine there's uh, such a depth of institutional knowledge and connectivity that comes yeah, out. Connection. You had to, somebody else did the interviews and now you're executing, uh, you're going back and getting serious about soliciting volunteers, the leadership, soliciting gifts, but you don't have the, you don't have the connection. That's right. Right. All right. You do get engaged periodically uh, with an organization that's got a strong development staff. We've got a few repeat clients in this boat. Uh, they they are prepared to and understand what is involved in going out and raising the money, but they always want third party objective feedback 
out of the feasibility study. So uh, they're getting perspective on how did we do over the past X number of years in communicating with our uh, constituents? How was our leadership seen in the community? Who would be the right leaders? Is the goal feasible? Now, again, we're not divulging the specific feedback from interviewees in these engagements, but we still say, hey, yes, we we believe this goal range is appropriate for you to pursue uh, and, and so on and so forth. But uh, they're doing that based on aggregate data. Whereas if we're retained to manage a campaign, uh, we have the benefit of all of that very specific and nuanced feedback from interviews that our team members would draw on throughout the campaign to, to guide strategy and next steps with, uh, with the different prospects that we may have interviewed. Okay. Okay. Um, so let's, let's stick with, you know, I want to, the, the, the nuts and bolts of this, of this uh, feasibility study. Um, how do we, well, who schedules the, who schedules the meetings? Is that, is that the nonprofit's responsibility? Now we've got this list of, you said typically, I think 50 to 65 interviews. Um, you know, who's, who, what's the mechanics of moving forward? Yeah. So we will have uh, on average between 55 and 65 interviews. Okay. That's going to come from a list of normally around 120 or so interviewees. We know we're not going to schedule everybody we want to meet with, but we want to get critical mass of feedback. So we start with a list expecting some folks won't be available. Uh, what we have found over time and time continues to affirm uh, a scheduler from the nonprofit organization is far more successful in securing these interviews, especially with your higher influence, uh, higher capacity interviewees, just because it's a name and a, and a number or an email address that they recognize. Uh, the, the email from Convergent Nonprofit Solutions is not incredibly likely to get a response when asking for a meeting. If, any, if anyone's like me, they get a number of those emails every day from somebody uh, uh, selling wares or offering something. And so we want to build from a place of strength in the scheduling. So we start with a representative uh, of the organization. Uh, usually we give about a two week lead time for scheduling. Uh, and then our average feasibility study is going to conduct interviews over a three week period. Uh, that person may have a little bit of scheduling work to do uh, over the first couple of weeks, just filling in the gaps. Uh, but typically, uh, that that scheduler is uh, two and a half, three weeks ish of their time uh, making some phone calls and following up on emails. And what are they asking folks to participate in? Uh, you, we're, we're, the insiders are calling it a feasibility study, uh, or you even have a different phrase that you call it. Uh, yeah, so we talk about opportunity opportunity analysis. But what are we using for our our interviewees, our potential? interviewees what are we calling it what are we what are we saying we're asking them to agree to yep we send a letter over the signatures of a few key leaders that are affiliated with the organization uh explaining why we are there uh, that we are absolutely not asking for funding we're seeking candid confidential feedback on the proposed plan that is attached to that letter so we're giving them an opportunity to see what we want to talk about before the meeting uh, partly so they know, but also so they've had an opportunity to digest it and come up with questions before we walk into the room. And we tell them it's a feasibility study. Uh, it's a uh, vetting of a potential campaign that it would be unwise for the organization to go forward apart from the feedback of these key valued stakeholders. 
uh, and constituents. And so uh, that information goes out to everyone on the interview list. Uh, we have some cases where uh, for, for sensitive information in the program of work, uh, the client that we would work with might not send out the full plan until someone actually schedules an interview. We have a um, online cloud-based scheduling system that we use. So all of that is automated and simple. So uh, not a lot of extra work uh, there, but um, we want uh, we want the interviewees to have perspective well before we walk in the room because it's going to help us get the strongest feedback. It's time for Tony's Take Two. Thank you, Classy. Their blog post is 17 Podcasts for Nonprofits You Need on Your Radar. Nonprofit Radio, that's this show, is their number five. It would be my pleasure to name the others, but there are 16 of them. You wouldn't remember them all, and that wouldn't be fair to the ones that you don't retain. Imagine that. Uh, I'm not going to let that happen to my fellow podcasters. Well, I'm not going to allow it. So there's really only one show you need to know. This one, Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. The post with the full list is on the blog at classy.org. Classy, thank you very, very much. That is Tony's Take Two. We've got buku, but loads more time for feasibility studies. What, why, and how with Brian Abernathy. They're, they're being asked to meet with someone outside the organization, right? That you, they're, they're being asked to meet with someone from Convergent. That's correct. And, and uh, we identify that person even in that letter. Uh, of you will be getting a call from uh, so-and-so at the nonprofit organization to schedule a time for you to meet with Brian from Convergent uh, for 45 minutes to an hour at a time of your convenience. So pretty uh, pretty clear all the way through. So they don't think uh, the executive director of the nonprofit is coming to meet with them. And then it's this outside consultant and they're caught off guard or what have you. You prefer to do these in person or is, is Zoom a suitable Substitute? What? Well, Zoom, Zoom has become a suitable substitute for a lot of things. Well, out, of, out of necessity, right. But Yeah, we still do the vast majority of our interviews in person. Uh, and uh, most of that is the opportunity to cultivate relationship. When we meet with someone in their home or in their office or wherever it may be, you know, just the, the fundraising experience of walking in and seeing things in their office to be able to, to draw some personal connections. If that's someone uh, that we're interviewing is three, four months later being sat down with by the same consultant to solicit a pledge, we walk in with that much more uh, relational credibility and equity uh, that we can leverage on behalf of our clients. So we love to do in-person and that's always our recommendation, but uh, we we absolutely are still doing some Zoom interviews, and in some cases, that's just the most functional. We've uh, we've worked with some higher ed clients that have donors all over the country, and so in person is just not realistic. And uh, Zoom allows us to do that, uh, and uh, what we sacrifice in terms of not getting that uh, in person sit down uh, sort of warm fuzzy feel uh, is certainly not detrimental to the results that we get in the final. Okay. Yeah. But you you prefer the in person. I always I always prefer in person meetings with you know for me I'm talking to planned giving 
prospects or plan giving donors doing stewardship. But, you know, there's just nothing like seeing pictures of grandchildren, a picture of a sailboat, awards from their business, whatever other photographs there might be. I mean, there's just a, a wealth of questions that, you know, you can ask folks about to try to build a foundation with people. And some of it, you know, may end up, you know, see pictures of uh, yachts in the Caribbean or a yacht in the Caribbean, you know, that, that may be indicative of uh, some, some potential, potential giving that you maybe didn't know about. Absolutely. Right? Uh, Absolutely. There's just there's so much in someone's home or office, uh, but even just drawing, just like I said, just drawing a foundation for a relationship, asking about the pictures, the, those children, grandchildren, you know, et cetera. So. Yeah. And these days, the in-person meetings are the ones that stand out in our memories, right? Where if you're like me, yeah. at least you're all the time, but the uh, so-and-so came by, sat in my office or my living room, we spent time together. Those are uh, now very much inflection points in terms of our interpersonal reactions or our uh, interpersonal interactions. And so that helps uh, sort of entrench that conversation in the mind of the interviewee as well, which is a benefit when we get to a campaign because we want to come back and build on that prior conversation. Yeah. You have a, just have a warmer foundation to the relationship if it's, if it's not virtual, if it's in person. What about meals? You like, uh, I, I like to, I like to, but I'm, I'm, I have a different purpose. I'm not doing feasibility studies, but I happen to like to meet prospects and donors over meals. Is that, is that maybe not so suitable for a feasibility study? Yeah, we specifically tried to avoid meals and public places for these conversations. And some of it is we want to hear really candid feedback and we want to hear it uh, about the organization we're working with. We want to hear it about, uh, as I mentioned a few moments ago, who do you think could be that? Oh, right. Yeah. Other people. Right. Right. The other person might be sitting two tables away or. Yeah. Right. That's right. That's right. So it makes it a little bit easier to get the type of feedback we want. Uh, when we're in a uh, quiet, private setting. Um, we've had uh, clients who have said, hey, we, we've got a conference room right here uh, in the office. We can do all the interviews in the office. Yeah. Uh, and certainly that's that's not the worst scenario. Mm-hmm. But what we don't want is somebody worried, well, gosh, the executive director's office is on the other side of this wall. I don't want them to hear some of my true thoughts. So I'll, I just won't share those things. So we... Right. We try to always go to the interviewee uh, so that we're sitting down uh, in in their turf, so to say. Okay. Okay. And then uh, you you have a conversation, right? You're you're building that foundational relationship because hopefully you'll you'll be embarking on a campaign with with this nonprofit. Any bad story, like any uh, war story, uh, you ever get thrown out of someone's home or office? Um, I, I hope. I'll not. tell but, one. But if I'll, you did, I want to. If you did, I want to hear about it. If you got yeah, thrown, thrown out, so you always get folks that have uh, some sort of other unique local agenda or organization that they've got a stronger affinity for, and you hear a, "Well, this is this is good," but this other organization is is really getting great work done. So those are pretty commonplace. Um, I had one uh, that is sort of my favorite. Uh, feasibility study war story that that really undergirds the importance of that fundraising uh, skill that I talked about earlier. I, I walked into a feasibility interview 
the gentleman that I was going to interview was ready. He was right there. Uh, as I walked in, he had the uh, the draft program of work in front of him. So I'm thinking, great. He read it. He's ready to go. Uh, and he pulls out another piece of paper and he says, I'm really glad that you're here because uh, five years ago, I supported this organization in a prior campaign. Uh, and this is the invoice for my last payment, which I'll be sending off later this week. And then he held up that program of work and he said, this is the only other information I've received in five years is this proposed program of work. So I'll be sitting this one out, uh, but I appreciate your coming by to hear my thoughts. And I didn't get my questionnaire out. Um, I, I said, thank you. Uh, I'll be sure to convey your thoughts appropriately. Uh, and, and that was the end of the interview. It was pretty quick. Uh, but that just goes to undergird, Tony, that all that we're doing in nonprofits is setting the stage for a next opportunity. So you may not have a capital campaign in the next two years, but the things that an organization is doing today are laying the foundational building blocks so that they can be successful whenever that capital campaign or major funding initiative or an annual campaign year in, you, you can swap out. Uh, the the avenue, but that that communication and relationship cultivation is absolutely critical. And the stewardship that follows. That's right. He, he sounds like he made a five year uh, a five year pledge. He was just about to send his fifth pledge payment. Happy to do it, but the stewardship was awful, and all he got was the next funding plan. Uh, right. But he he set you up. Very very valid reasons for that in yeah, the life cycle yeah. of an organization and its leadership. But but that that individual didn't care if there was a valid reason. His perception was the reality that he was working from, uh, and and learning those things is good. Sometimes it's painful to learn those things. But again, I would say that's a value of a feasibility study is you get some of that inside perspective oh. uh, you otherwise might not have. Oh, absolutely. You know, you can't count on that guy. He's not, he's not going to be your volunteer. He's not going to be your uh, honorary chair. That's right. He's not going to be any kind of volunteer and he's not going to give. So that is valuable to know because they probably thought exactly the opposite because he made a five-year pledge to the previous campaign. So they probably thought he was a very, very good prospect for this campaign, but right. they did not do a good job at stewardship. So he's sitting it out. I do note though, that he set you up. He wanted to tell you this face-to-face. He didn't want to do it by email. He didn't say, have Mr. Abernathy call me in, 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 uh, before he arranges the, the meet. Be, before we meet, have Mr. Abernathy call me. Didn't, didn't offer that. He, he wanted to tell it to you face to face. That's right. He was going to schedule the meeting. Right. After the swap. And, you know, I can't even, uh, it's probably not fair to presume intent or motive, but there's a little bit of a, giving you the level of interaction that I didn't get, right? Nobody came by to talk to me, but you're here now. And so I'm going to tell you face <laughs> in my perspective, it conveyed the seriousness of his thoughts. It's really easy to ignore an email. It's really easy to just say, no, thanks. Don't have time to meet with you. But uh, it, it appropriately conveyed how, how significant it was to him that he had not been communicated with. Stewardship, stewardship. There's no chance of trying to resurrect that relationship in, in maybe in the midst of the campaign. I mean, the the CEO would have to be in very humble, case, and, there was not, uh, humble and apologetic, uh, but uh, maybe it's worth exploring. Yeah, but, and that's one of those spots where you look at, okay, 
presuming you have the information available, who connected with this individual last time? What was the process by which they were cultivated and solicited? Uh, what's their prior other engagement with the organization? And sometimes, uh, Tony, I've had uh, feasibility interviewees tell me, oh, we might give a very nominal amount to this and I would have no interest in a leadership role because I've got my business to run and I've got these other things going on. But then you go back to them with the right person and they're your campaign chair, right? I've literally seen that in or that specific instance play out uh, in a campaign. And so it goes to show that just because someone says yes or no in one of these conversations does not mean that's their final answer. And, and again, some of that is in the feasibility study, the value of an outside consultant is nobody's afraid to tell them the truth. They don't know them. They don't have any local uh, affiliate, uh, affiliation. Uh, and so they're just talking objectively about a program of work and collecting information. When you get into a campaign, uh, what you want is the exact opposite. You want relationship, you want influence, and you pair the strategy and the perspective of a consultant with someone with local relationship and influence and you go back and you can change the response that you get uh, very readily in many cases. So I'm not so naive. I mean, it's, it's possible. It is. Yeah. To resurrect. Even the guy who says, even the guy that one case held pretty, pretty true, but uh, he held firm, but I would try if I were the CEO, I would try. And then if he's not going to meet me, or, you know, he's dismissive of the, you know, then, of course, yeah. you can't pull any further. I'm not suggesting go any further, but it's worth a try, I, I think. He, he, you know, I, I'm of the mind that if he didn't care, I know we're pulling on this one thread, but you, you picked a very valuable, that's a really valuable outlier in your experience. He did care enough to tell you why. He didn't, he didn't just do the things that you suggested would have been much easier. Ignore the phone call, ignore the email. Just, you know, and then and just blow the whole thing off. He did take the time to tell the organization that they messed up the relationship with him in That's so many in so many words. So my belief is if people are willing to tell you that you've messed up, they 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 still love you, just not as much as they did when they made the five year pledge from the previous yeah. campaign. They don't love you as much, but they do still have an affinity. They want you to know that you screwed it up. So I, I I see some I see some potential, but and you're saying I'm not 100% naive in ex, at least trying to explore it. That's right. Absolutely. Okay, I'm optimistic. I have glasses half full. What else, what else can you tell us about the mechanics of? You know, now you've got these 55 to 65 interviews. You said you do done do them over like three weeks. Obviously, you need some time to prepare your report. Do all you have multiple? I guess you have multiple interviewers. And how do you how do you sort of coalesce the opinions of multiple interviewers? Yeah, so we've got some data collection and analysis tools that we use internally uh, that we come at from a couple of angles. So typically, uh, we would have one dedicated consultant who is running through the entire feasibility study process, uh, and in a lot of cases, another of our senior team members is going to come on site for two three days to to join some interviews. What we want is a couple of different sets of eyes on things. Mm -hmm. um, and then we come back out of those. Uh, our, our team member who's been face-to-face -face with folks is telling us uh, sort of the, uh, the nuance. Of, I heard these trends 
in conversation. And these things don't bear out in the numbers, uh, which are, are readily evolving day by day as we complete interviews. So we're watching those trends as things move forward. Uh, but we're able to say this, this number ticks here, but there's, there's a factor over here that's meaningful that's not going to show up in the numbers. And so our, uh, our on-the-ground consultant uh, is looking at that. Then a member of our client services leadership team is just blinders on looking at the data right? Did we see a high enough level of interest in filling a leadership role? If we didn't, we know there's a hurdle we're going to have to address. Do the completely uh, objective numbers of number of potential high-level investors, uh, we say investors, not donors, uh, does the number of potential uh, high-level prospects match with what we would want to see to know that we could go out there and hit, you know, the 300 Hall of Fame batting average and still have a suitable pool of lead investments. Uh, do the numbers of financial indications match up to what history has shown us we need to see to validate a campaign goal? And then we come together as a team internally and compare all of those things uh, and triangulate in on uh, the positive factors, the challenging factors, uh, we identify what we call X factors that are outside variables that no one could control, but we heard enough about this that if X, Y, and Z breaks this direction, it could have an adverse uh, impact on the campaign. And again, we can't do anything about it, but we need to always be aware of it so that we're not surprised if something uh, happens to shift, whether that's local economy. I mean, uh, who knows what those things could be, uh, but they pretty often will reveal themselves through our interviews. And then it's a, a, a delivery to the to the board. I don't know. Do the board leaders get an advanced copy of the report, uh, and then it's a delivery to the full board, or everybody gets it released to them at the same time? How does uh, what, what's the best way there? So generally, within about a week of completing our interviews, uh, we're going to jump on a call with the uh, executive and maybe executive team for our client, uh, depending on their preference. Uh, and share our preliminary findings. So this is, yes, we believe a campaign is feasible or not. Here's the goal amount that we believe is uh, is feasible, low to high range. And here are any other unique variables that we wanna get planted in your mind so that you can think through how it would be best to present those to your board and other key leaders. That meeting's typically about three weeks or so after we complete the interviews because it does take us a couple of two, two and a half weeks to get that report uh, together and polished up and presentable. Uh, and then we would send it to our client executive and give them discretion as to how they would want to distribute it. In some cases, they just want to share uh, an executive summary. And so we've got that ready. Uh, in others, they want us to present and then they want to share the report. So we're pretty flexible uh, on that. And that's really because every organization is different. And so we don't that's one of those spots that we don't try to prescribe. You've got to send the whole report to the whole board before some boards would read it and then check out of the conversation in person. And, you know, there's all kinds of variables out there that uh, we don't try to uh, over prescribe a method for, uh, for how we would present. But we would step in, uh, show them the details of the findings, uh, give them some of the candid feedback uh, at a, again, aggregate level uh, and share whatever our recommendations would be for next steps. That's, that's a feasibility study. And then they've got their 90 to 120 days to make a decision. Yeah. And most of the time it's, uh, 
it's if there's a campaign uh, or follow on work, I should say, most of the time it's a much quicker uh, transition. We had a client recently uh, that um, is sort of still in this process. So, but they had a very specific piece of uh, X factor outside variable that needed to have a clear decision before they would be well positioned to move into a campaign uh, that happened to involve some public sector decisions. Uh, that has played out over the course of about nine months. And uh, it looks like now they're going to be ready to move towards that campaign. Okay. Oh, but now they're, oh, but now they're nine months past the feasibility study. So there might need to be some follow-up interviews. That's right. We'll schedule uh, over the first month or so of the campaign, a handful of those re-interviews, just rechecking bearings, knowing that there's no new surprises that may have crept up or identifying any new surprises and course correcting for how we would want to navigate those moving forward. You had mentioned foundations as interviewees. Foundation staff are willing to, to, to take these kinds of meetings and make a, a, a broad, I mean, they can't commit, they can't commit because every decision is a, is a decision of the board, but foundation staff, or I guess it's program staff are willing to take this? Uh, in varying cases. And so you, you hit a very specific point that we always monitor when there are foundations on our interview list is 99% uh, of the time that foundation staff person is going to say uh, a grant is a decision of the board. Our grant guidelines are on the internet or our invitation only or whatever the variables. But we typically can be pretty strategic in using an interview if we get it uh, as a cultivation uh, approach. So less of a tell us what the foundation would do and more of a how would we best position this for success given your focus areas as a foundation and would your foundation rather lead the way and help us get out of the starting block strong or put us over the goal line at the other end uh, of the campaign. And, and as you probably know very well, there are foundations that have very specific spots that they want to play in that process. Uh, and we need to know that uh, in a campaign so that we're not starting out banking on a meaningful grant from a foundation when that foundation's board would rather be making that grant, you know, when we're 80, 90% of the way to the goal already. And, and it could be a funder that's funded the nonprofit in the past. That's right. So, and they're still not going to commit to something. Uh, they're still going to defer to their board, but uh, they, they, you can deepen the relationship in, in that case. Okay. Absolutely. Okay. All right, Brian, why don't you uh, just leave us with a little, uh, a little motivation about uh, feasibility studies? The important thing with a feasibility study is, uh, I would say, is getting it right. It's not one of those things that you want to rush through. I would say to a nonprofit, it's not something you really want to do on your own uh, because you're going to miss some of that objective third-party perspective. And that is uh, such a valuable due diligence, uh, a campaign, a capital campaign of a large scale, and we're typically testing multi-million dollar projects. It's not one of those things that you want to risk swinging and missing, uh, knowing exactly what is out there in terms of the fundability of a plan, the amount of funding that's there can save a lot of relational equity. Uh, and as we talked about before, credibility for an organization. So uh, like I said, we will do feasibility studies where there is no interest in our doing a campaign uh, and, and offer that perspective and that guidance, but it also, uh, where an organization recognizes they don't have the capacity for a campaign, 
uh, in terms of their internal staff uh, is a uh, just invaluable first step uh, of counting the cost before you still go out and uh, start to build that tower. So uh, we're uh, no surprise, big proponents of feasibility studies. Uh, we've talked a lot internally. Is there a is there a way to get the same information out of a different process? This is one of those things we've tried. Uh, every thought of innovation and how how could we move faster? But the reality is, from our experience, there is just not a better way to get the level of intelligence that a feasibility study provides and then be able to go into a capital campaign from a position of success. And, and plus, there's that relational foundation. Yeah, that, that that's so much that's so much value to it as well. Building that building that relationship. All right. Thank you, Brian. Brian Abernathy, general manager at Convergent Nonprofit Solutions. The company is at convergentnonprofit.com and you'll find Brian on LinkedIn. Brian, thank you very much. Thanks so much, Tony. My pleasure. Thanks for sharing. Next week, data-driven storytelling with Julia Campbell. If you missed any part of this week's show, I beseech you, find it at TonyMartinetti.com. We're sponsored by DonorBox. With intuitive fundraising software from DonorBox, your donors give four times faster. Helping you help others. DonorBox.org. Our creative producer is Claire Meyerhoff. The show's social media is by Susan Chavez. Mark Silverman is our web guy. And this music is by Scott Stein. Thank you for that affirmation, Scotty. Be with me next week for Nonprofit Radio. Big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. Go out and be great. 